Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, even as as we have sung, as we have prayed, as we have engaged with your scripture, I, I trust that we have been challenged anew with your glory that is in the face of Christ. And even the exhortation to grow in our sense of what it is that you have accomplished what it is for us to be sharers in this marvelous work, sharers in this marvelous accomplishment, sharers in your new creation. I pray, Father, that you would indeed give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would cause us to see ever more clearly and and to hold tightly to and to rejoice in the riches of the glory of the inheritance that is ours. And again, the greatness of this power, the surpassing greatness of this power that is among us, that is unto us, that will see all things, including our individual lives, fully perfected, fully summed up in Jesus, our Lord. Father, I pray that you will enable us and that you will inflame our hearts to be a people zealous to hold tightly to the truth as it is in Christ, to live authentically as his people, to bear his fragrance, with integrity, in truth, and that you will meet us in our weakness, that you will meet us in our failures, in our infirmity, that we will find all confidence and all hope in the God who has pledged to perfect all things as the God who has begun that work in us and among us. May we be people of the truth. So meet us in our need Build us up for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen. As we come to the end of Hebrews, and we will be finishing, Lord willing, the epistle next week. It's always kind of hard and bittersweet in some ways to come to the end of a series like this. I think we're about, what, 83, 84 weeks into it or something like that, but... um, It's probably much more of a delight for me than for you, but it's certainly uh, as much as we come to the end of a season, like I said, it is kind of bittersweet because it's been a huge delight and encouragement to me to interact with this marvelous epistle again. But as we come uh, to this 
invocation today, verses 20 and 21, the writer has completed his practical exhortations, which actually the series of practical exhortations that we've considered, he would view as just uh, one component of an epistle that itself he calls a brief word of exhortation. The epistle itself he regarded as an exhortation to them. And as I've said so many times, he wrote pastorally. He didn't write as a theologian. He didn't present to them a systematic theology of the doctrine of Christ. He wrote to them pastorally as a brother, longing to see them remain steadfast, longing to see them hold tightly to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, longing to see them persevere in great difficulty and challenge and trials of all sorts, emotional trials, intellectual trials, physical trials, to see them persevere. That was his longing. And the whole epistle functions as an exhortation to that, that they would abide, that they would continue on. So his reason for treating uh, this doctrine of Christ at such a depth and with, with such thoroughness is that he recognized, as I hope that we do, that the key to perseverance, the key to faithfulness in the storms of life, the key to being anchored and rooted and grounded and not being blown and tossed about, the key to steadiness and stability is an ever-increasing true knowledge of the God, the creator God in Jesus by the Spirit. The key to faithfulness, the key to perseverance is growing in the knowledge of Christ. Not simply gathering information, but as Paul said, learning him. Learning him. Being conformed to him. Finding his life worked out and perfected within us. And that's the reason for the writer's high Christology in this book. Eminently practical. That they would grow in the knowledge of Christ and so they would abide steadfast and firm, whatever may come to them. So as he comes to the end of this section of exhortations, which as I say, suit the overall epistle as an exhortation, he turns his attention to where I think he appropriately ought to, which is to God himself. Having exhorted them, now he turns his attention to God. And he does so with this invocation in verses 20 and 21. An invocation is a, in religious terms is a particular kind of prayer. It's a prayer of entreaty, a prayer of petition an invoking of God, but, but calling upon him on the basis of a need, on the basis of, of a request, a petition, an entreaty for a provision. That God would arise on behalf of a need and make provision. And this is an invocation in that way. But what's interesting about this invocation is that it's not uh, a prayer seeking God's material provision, temporal provision, material blessing, or, or any of the things that we might think you know, would be the natural orientation of invoking God in view of a need. But this invocation is directed towards God seeking on the basis of these readers or for their sake and for his own sake that 
God's purposes in and for them would be fully realized. That God's purposes for and in them would be fully realized. And I think that that's significant. It doesn't mean, again, even as we were discussing in the Sunday school hour, that we don't pray for temporal needs, that we don't pray for uh, the issues that in a certain sense are confronting us under the sun. But there's a recognition that ultimately God's intent in all things, in all that he provides, in all that he does, is that his work in and for us will be fully realized. Even as that work as it pertains to us looks through us and beyond us to his intent for the whole creation. Our place in his purposes is our place within the purpose to sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus. So we don't deny the meaning of the individual puzzle pieces, but the meaning of the pieces is in the whole. That's how we come to understand the significance of the pieces. And as an invocation, this is very compacted and very dense. I was trying to think of an example of something that we would know that could kind of make the point, but... The, the best thing I could come up with is sometimes you see these greeting cards, you know, uh, they're, they're very flat, but you open them up and then they pop into the shape of a house or something like that. And they take on, it's like this thing just unfolds or the way a flower, you know, it starts as a little bud and then, then it just unfolds into this marvelous full bloom. And this invocation is very much that way. It's very compacted. It's very dense. And what I want to do today is to try to open it up and see the fullness that is there. Because some scholars have said, and I would tend to agree with this, that in this simple invocation, this entreaty to God, there is a kind of encapsulating of the writer's entire burden throughout the whole epistle. And hopefully we'll see some of that and, and have some sense of the truth of that as we consider this today. So the invocation reads, Now the God of peace, this is verses 20 and 21, Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. A very simple statement, but very dense, very concentrated. I want to treat it in terms of of two general ideas here. Well, three, actually. First, the subject, this entreaty, the way that he addresses God. An entreaty directed to God, but the way that he addresses him. And then secondly, the entreaty itself. What is it that he asks of this God? And then the third piece is the doxology that rolls off the backside of it, the statement of praise. Well, the first thing that he does, I mean, he identifies God in two specific ways. But the first way that he identifies him or describes him is as the God of peace. That's a common expression in Paul's writing, but it doesn't occur anywhere else in this epistle. And not that that in itself is monumentally significant, but it is interesting that it's only in this closing invocation that the writer uses that expression, the God of peace. He clearly intended it to frame 
the content, to frame the understanding that he's bringing to bear. The God of peace. And as we've discussed before in other settings, other passages, this idea of peace is the Hebrew concept of shalom. Much more than what we tend to think of in, in, in our vernacular, in our culture, peace basically means the absence of military conflict or, you know, the absence of conflict between nations or, uh, you know, peace in a household. When I was growing up, four kids in a house, my dad used to say, we need some peace in the valley. And he meant, you know, be quiet. <laughs> we, need, we need a little peace here. Well, you know, we tend to think of peace in those sorts of ways, peace in a relationship, peace in between nations. And it's basically the absence of conflict. But peace in the Hebrew sense, peace in the biblical sense, is much more profound than that. It's actually a creational concept, and it has to do with the settledness, the rest. I said in the Sunday school hour, you see shalom and Shabbat always go together. Shabbat, Sabbath, rest, shalom, peace. Peace and rest always go together, even in Sabbath observances. Because peace is what... Peace points to the fact of rest. Where there is rest, there is peace. And where there is peace, there is rest. Rest being a kind of settledness. Settledness. Not the absence of activity, but settledness. That points to the idea of completion. Peace refers to, shalom refers to a settledness that reflects harmony. Harmony. Harmony and flourishing. In the biblical way of looking at it, when everything in God's creation is perfectly conformed to its created nature and function, everything as it was intended to be, where there is no discord, no unsettledness, no agitation, where everything is at rest, perfect harmony, perfect flourishing, you have shalom. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a a book called um, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, subtitled A Breviary of Sin, where he treated this issue of sin. And he referred to sin as the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of shalom. Sin as, again, not bad behavior as such, but a thing's deviation from the truth of what it was created to be. And where there is that deviation, you have the interruption, a perturbation in this thing called shalom, harmony. The flourishing of all things in perfect relationship. We can come close to seeing that when we look at ecosystems, in our world, where you have millions of plant and animal species all woven together in perfect interdependent harmony, each reliant on the other, each finding its blessing and its flourishing in relation to the other. And of course, when people get involved, those ecosystems get all messed up and there's no longer shalom. But as God created this world, we see this pattern of shalom and Shabbat throughout his creation. God is a God of harmony. God is a God of order. We see it in the first instance in his own inner Trinitarian relationship. 
perfect harmony, perfect submission, perfect devotion between Father, Son, and Spirit. So that's the idea of peace. It points to God's intent and God's goal for his creation. And in the context of the world as we know it, we can say that shalom represents the undoing, the reversal of the curse. The curse is antithetical. When we talk about the curse from the fall, it's antithetical to shalom. What did the curse do? It set everything at odds with everything else. As I said so many times, people at odds with God, people at odds with themselves, people at odds with one another, people at odds with the created order. You see this this discord and and this, this, instead of mutual harmony and mutual flourishing, you see things interacting to the destruction of themselves and the other. You see that in, in Genesis 3 with the cursing of the ground. That which was to flourish, the, the keeping of the garden wasn't working it. It was guarding it, stewarding it, loving it, shepherding it as God's wise stewards in the world. And the, the earth would yield up its bounty eagerly profusely, the perfect harmony between man and the world. And the fall ended all of that. Now cursed is the ground, thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, you'll bring forth the the, the yield of the earth and make your bread. You'll work and you'll work and you'll work and the world will, and the earth will fight you. The creation will fight you. And in the end, it will kill you. And then it will consume you when your body goes in the ground. That's the way the fall is depicted in Genesis 3, the, the opposite of shalom, the imposition of a curse. And so this theme of peace then becomes a central theme in God's promise of creational renewal. I just want to look at a couple places with you, and you can see this throughout the scripture. But if we look at, at Isaiah uh, 52... Now, we all know Isaiah 53, right? The passage on the suffering servant. But it's a part of a much larger context associated with the servant's songs, the poems that talk about Yahweh's servant, this redeeming one who is to come. But chapter 52 and 54 sit on either side of 53, in an appropriate sort of way. But in Isaiah 52, verse 1, now this is in the context of the promise of Zion's renewal. Judgment, destruction, calamity are coming because of broken covenant, because of unfaithfulness, because of the absence of shalom. But he says, awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion, clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. Zion in the most narrow sense, kind of represents Jerusalem, but it it more represents the covenant wife of Yahweh, the covenant bride who bears children for God. Zion as the unfaithful wife to become the faithful wife who will bear children for him. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. 
Shake yourself from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, you were sold for nothing, talking about the, um, the um, conquests and the exile to come. You were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares Yahweh, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, he declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all the day long. Therefore, my people shall know my name. In that day, they will know I am the one who is speaking, saying, here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces peace. And brings good news of happiness, of delight, of felicity. Who announces deliverance and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. 53 explains then how it is that God will do this work. What will stand behind this good news of peace? And then in 54 verse 1 Isaiah says, shout for joy, O barren one. This is Zion who is to be made desolate by captivity, by exile, the destruction of her children. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting. Cry aloud, you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. For all of the abundant offspring of Zion in her previous life, so to speak, when I restore her, the one who will, is now desolate, more abundant will be her offspring than they were before. I'm stripping her of her sons and daughters, but when I restore her, it will be even more abundant. Paul draws from this passage in Galatians 4. Therefore, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not, spare not, lengthen your cords, strengthen your pegs. This is the call to Zion to enlarge her habitation so that she can take in all of the sons and daughters who are going to be given to her when she's restored through the work of the servant. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts the Lord of the, of the armies of heaven, the Lord of the powers, the Lord who is triumphant. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who's called the God of all the earth. Therefore, your sons and daughters will come from all the earth. For Yahweh has called you, 
Zion, like a wife forsaken, grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, faithfulness, I I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah should not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you again, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed, the hills may even shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace." will not be shaken, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. You see, when the writer draws in this idea of God as the God of peace, this is the way he's thinking. It's not the God who's going to you know, bring some peace to your turbulent life and your boss that drives you nuts or your, your kids that won't go to sleep at night or whatever it happens to be. It's not that. The God of peace is this God who has pledged peace, who has promised creational renewal and has accomplished that in the Messiah. And the prophets connected that promise of life out of death. That's why I mentioned Isaiah 53 and why I read these passages on either side, because the prophets connected that renewal, that peace with the messianic servant the one who God would send, the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And so the writer says that the God whose goal is peace has raised Jesus from the dead. The God whose goal is peace has raised Jesus from the dead. Peace, in the sense that we've been discussing, is the main issue He even, the writer understands, it's the main issue in Jesus' death and resurrection. Peace. Yes, forgiveness, personal forgiveness. Yes, cleansing. But ultimately, those things themselves sit under and serve this idea of peace. Peace. And this peace is a cosmic peace, as I said, creational renewal. Paul wrote to the Colossians and says, God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. In who? In the Messiah. And by the blood of his cross to reconcile to himself all things in the heavens and the earth. To reconcile to himself all things in the heavens and the earth making peace through the blood of his cross. Peace is the issue with Jesus' death and resurrection. God raises the Messiah in light of his goal of peace. Creational renewal, creational restoration. And because that renewal, that restoration, that principle of shalom, harmony, Flourishing because that has the divine human relationship at the center, and it does. The curse came about because of human rebellion against God. Why is the ground cursed? Why is the creation cursed? It didn't do anything. 
How does the ground sin against God? It doesn't. But the creation, by God's design, the creation's relationship with him is in and through man, the creature who is the image bearer. And so when the relationship between God and his human creature was fractured, then the relationship between God and the rest of the creation is fractured. And that's why in Romans 8, there can't be the renewal of the material creation until there is the full restoration of man. Paul says the creation groaning under the curse is is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. When the resurrection, when when the renewal of, of his human creature is accomplished in full, then the creation will be restored to him. Because man is the image bearer. He is the image Lord. He is the king and priest on behalf of God's ministration to his creation. Well, why do I say that? Because the writer describes this Jesus who is raised as the great shepherd of the sheep. You see how these ideas just unfold and unpack. It's very condensed. But the God whose goal is peace raised Jesus from the dead. Well, what about him? He's the great shepherd of the sheep. And this is a huge Old Testament image, the image of the shepherd. Fundamentally, God is the shepherd of his people. God is the shepherd of mankind. But he mediated that role. He administered his role as shepherd through appointed shepherd rulers. The preeminent shepherd ruler was David. David was the preeminent shepherd ruler appointed by God to shepherd his people Israel. But when you look in Ezekiel 34, it's all about the shepherds. And God talks about how these shepherds in Israel have been unfaithful. They essentially use their authority and their power not to nurture and care for and protect God's sheep, but to benefit themselves. He says they drink the clear water and they muddy the water with their hooves. They eat the, 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 the green sweet grass and they trample the rest down with their hooves. And God says, I will not have these shepherds lead my flock anymore. I will arise and I will shepherd them. How will I do it? I will set over them David, my servant. He will shepherd my flock. Well, if you know that that period of history, David is long since dead by the time Ezekiel is writing that. How's God going to set David over his flock to shepherd his flock? Because from the time God made his covenant with David, David was the great prototype of the great shepherd who would come. In the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, he said, I took you from the sheepfold to shepherd my people Israel. He says that to David. I took you from the sheepfold to shepherd my people Israel. But I will raise up a son from your body, a descendant in your house, and I will establish your house and your throne and your kingdom in him everlastingly. David's role as shepherd, as ruler in God's name on his behalf, the shepherd, the under-shepherd under God, the chief shepherd, now that ultimately looks to the one who would come, 
who is the Messiah himself. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And so the writer is saying that Jesus was raised from the dead in view of his regal vocation as God's great shepherd, the singular shepherd, the unique shepherd, the shepherd who all the previous shepherds only portrayed and prefigured. Ultimately, the one in whom God shepherds his people in the ultimate sense. God, the great shepherd, carries out that shepherding work in the Messiah, the one he raised from the dead. He was raised as the great shepherd, the one who cares for, nurtures, and leads God's sheep in the path of safety and provision, leads them to be the father's sheep dwelling in his safe habitations. And so the raising up of the son was unto that role that he would be the shepherd the shepherd of mankind. And the writer also says that this was in accordance with, really the idea is in view of the blood of the everlasting covenant. Another hugely important concept. This raising of Jesus, what he's saying, this is what the grammar is saying. This raising of Jesus sits within this covenantal purpose of God that he calls the everlasting covenant that is secured and ratified in Jesus' blood. But the raising of Jesus is set within that covenantal purpose, what he calls the everlasting covenant. The covenant that the Old Testament speaks of in terms of covenant renewal. All of God's covenants leading up to this found their fulfillment in that everlasting covenant. All of those covenants and the order and the flow of them, all of them were unto God's ultimate design of shalom, to create and fill his creation with his life, with his love, with his goodness, in and through man, the creature who bears his image and likeness. All of the covenants that God made, you know, whether we talk about Noah or Abraham or David or Israel's covenant at Sinai, all of those relational contractual arrangements were furthering this purpose of God, that he would indeed prove himself to be the God of peace, the God of peace. So God raised Jesus situated within this thing that is his purpose, his intent that he calls the everlasting covenant, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. And as I said, the Old Testament speaks of it as covenant renewal. And I'm not going to go down this path, but so much, you know, in American Christian theology, at least, you tend to see this old covenant, new covenant. This one replaced this one. This one was works. This one was grace, whatever. And we set these things against each other, but it doesn't work that way. All of these covenants were wedded together in a way that they find their ultimacy, their truth, their, their fulfillment in this thing called the renewal of God's creational covenant, if you will, his relationship with his world in the Messiah. Raise Jesus in view of the blood of the everlasting covenant. So that's how he defines this God who he entreats. All of that is the way he defines this God that he now entreats. 
And that is a crucial framework for understanding even what it is that he's entreating God concerning, what it is that he's asking of God. As he describes God in that way, his petition is, may God equip you in every good thing to do his will. Well, if we don't situate that that entreaty within that, that description of God as I've laid that out, it's very easy for us to view this in the way that we naturally do, which is doing God's will means finding out what God has for my life and, and, and you know, finding the will of God for me. What job? What wife? Where do I live? What do I do? What is God's will for my life? What college do I go to? What degree do I get? And that's not at all what the writer is getting at. His description of God, his description of God's intent and God's work and God's accomplishment in the Messiah shows that this idea of doing God's will concerns the role of his people in relation to what he has accomplished in Jesus as the God of peace and where this is ultimately going. Doing God's will involves living into the truth of this new creation that God has inaugurated in Christ, living into the truth of that and our share in it. This is always the way the New Testament understands this relationship between, you know, we talk about imperatives, what God tells us to do, doing his will. Uh, You know, the imperatives are the commands or the directives or the prescriptions. They're always the outflow of the indicatives, what is true. And it's the same thing here. The imperative is, in the scriptures, imperatives or obligations are simply the obligation to live out what is true. To conform to the truth. If you've been raised with Christ, and you have, so that your life is hidden with Christ in God, such that Christ is your life, live that out. Reckon your members which are on the earth as dead to immorality, impurity, lust, greed, all of these things. Because you died. You've been raised up. The scripture never says, go do this. It says, be who you are. Be who you are. And it's the same thing here. This petition on behalf of these Hebrews is grounded in what God has done and their participation in what he has done. And it's even reinforced by this verb uh, that the NAS renders as equip. May God equip you to do his will. This equipping has to do with the idea of fitting something out, repairing something, or restoring something, or fitting something out, like fitting out a ship, you know, setting it up. And the idea is to set something in proper order so that it can actually function the way it was intended to function. Sometimes the verb is used of repairing nets. Well, under what end? Why would you repair a net? So that it can accomplish its function. So the verb has the idea of a restoration or a completion, 
fitting something out. You know, we use the term outfitting. You get outfitted when you're going on a, you know, whatever, a six-week camping trip or something like that. You get fitted out so that you can have what you need to do the function of that particular task. In this context, the idea of equipping conveys the idea of something being configured or fitted out so that it can do what it is that God created it to do. And since it concerns God's children, the idea is that they would be fitted out by God. God equip them, fit them out in order that they can fulfill their role as your image children. Since you are this kind of a God who has done this, and the resurrection of Jesus is unto his role as the great shepherd of the sheep, enable them to walk that out, enable them to live in light of their share in that. Those are some initial observations, but then this this plea is ultimately for their completion with respect to goodness, goodness. Equip them with in every good thing to do his will. Equip them in every good thing to do his will. A completion that is associated with God's ministration of every good thing. And we have to be careful here too because it's like, yeah, I want God to equip me with every good thing. Of course I do. Who doesn't want God to equip them with every good thing? Here's the list of the good things. Right? I want God to equip me with every good thing. But what the writer is saying that this goodness is associated with good in accordance with God's good pleasure in perfecting his people. That which is good in that sense, inherently good, because it serves that purpose. So God is not, or the writer is not saying what some Christians take from this, which is that God would equip us to do good works. That's not what he's saying. He's pleading with this particular God that he's described to perfect these Hebrews in all goodness. To perfect them in all goodness. Not equip them to go and do good works. And I'm not saying in some sense that we are not called to do good works. We are God's creation in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared for us. But the writer isn't saying that. His petition, his plea is that God would fit them out in all goodness so that they would be fitted to do his will, that they would be conformed to him and his mind, that that, that this work of goodness in them would equip them for doing his will, to fulfill their identity and calling as his image children. Those who bear the likeness of the image son. Paul writes to the, to the Ephesians, he says, as imitators, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do not let immorality, any impurity, greed, even be named among you as is proper among his saints. And no filthiness, no silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Do not be partakers with them, for formerly you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Learning what is pleasing to the Lord. Learning what is pleasing to the Lord. The orientation and the goal of God's work in human beings, what he calls the work of God's good pleasure, is this work of perfecting goodness all goodness in them unto this fittedness to fulfill their created identity and function, to actually live as image children. And this longing of the writer is not just for these Hebrews, but himself. Look again at how he puts this. He says, may the God of peace perfect you in all goodness, working in us. May he perfect you in all goodness, but working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight, unto the end that we should be fully fitted to do his will, which is to live out this reality of new creation. To actually be, in truth, children of God. Children of this God, the God who has brought peace, the God who has raised up the great shepherd of the sheep. And all of that, intent, all of that working, all of that accomplishment, all of that fruitfulness that God intends that he, that he is about has its focal point, its substance in Jesus himself. The God whose goal is perfect peace, he achieves that, as he says, through Jesus the Messiah. Through Jesus the Messiah. So he closes this invocation with this doxology, this brief song of praise. And some scholars say, well, it's referring back to God. Some say it's referring to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the immediate referent. This is the end of verse 21. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And some scholars say that that to whom reflects back to the God of peace who has accomplished this. To him belong glory forever and ever. Others say that it refers to um, here to Jesus our Lord. Through Jesus the Messiah, to whom be glory forever and ever. And I think really you have to, in a certain sense, say both are true. Both are true, but in a certain sense. Because in the scriptural way of looking at this, the glory of the Father is bound up in the glory of the Son. The writers already said Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact expression of his nature. To behold the Son is to behold the Father. There can't be any glorification of God except as it is in the Son. The glory of God, Paul says, is in the face of Christ, right? The glory of God is in the face of Christ. And God himself affirmed that he is glorified in the Messiah's glory. 
Often, I mean, I've even heard pastors do this, but other Christians as well, set the Father, Son, and Spirit in some kind of pecking order or, you know, he gets 40% of the praise and glory, he gets 30, he gets 20, and in this partitioning of things up in that sort of way. That somehow it might even be blasphemous to make much of Jesus because it's really about the Father. Jesus is just the instrument to the Father. It's about God. It's not about Jesus. Or it's about Jesus more than the Spirit. Father, Son, then Spirit. And so even in this rationing of glory, partitioning of glory, it's got to sit in that sort of a pecking order. But God himself affirms that his glory is in the Messiah's glory. Probably the most simple way to put it is that the prophets promised a day when God would arise and his glory would be revealed in a way that it had never been revealed before. God would arise and he would display his glory and his glory would flood the earth. And the New Testament shows us that that fulfillment came with Jesus' incarnation and his work. The promise of God's glory flooding the earth is fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah himself. God's glory fully revealed, fully disclosed in him. And so the promise that you see in Isaiah and the other prophets is really worked out in relation to Jesus himself. I won't take the time to read these passages, but just look at this idea in in John, particularly as you get into the upper room discourse. But 12, 13, 14, up through chapter 17, and see how Jesus connects the Father's glory with his own glory, and you'll see the truth of what I'm saying. So also, with respect to the Spirit, this isn't a depreciating of the Spirit, but the Spirit finds his own glory in testifying to Jesus, right? The the Spirit's glory is, and the ultimate climactic way of his glory and his power is in the way in which he testifies to the Messiah himself, takes what is Jesus and communicates it. He's the recreator spirit who's become the spirit of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus. It's not the confusing within the Trinity of saying, okay, the spirit's no longer the spirit, but he is functionally the spirit of Jesus because he reveals and discloses and imparts and perfects Christ's life and the knowledge of him and his likeness to people. So Paul says, we're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if the spirit of God dwells in us. But if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to God. But if Christ is in you, then though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Spirit of God, spirit of Christ, Christ himself. Paul says Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is Christ in us? By his spirit. So I think the focal point here of the doxology, this is the point of all of that. The the focal point of the doxology is Jesus himself. But in that way, it it, it actually draws in in a proper way the glory of God, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Spirit. Well, I just want to close by drawing our minds back. This is, again, an invocation 
It's a prayer of entreaty. The, the, the writer, as his parting shot, now is turning his attention to God. After all this instruction, all this exhortation, all this warning, he turns his attention to God and he pleads, may God grant you this. May God grant you this. It's a prayer. It's a petition for them. It's a kind of intercession that he includes himself in, but it's an invocation for this provision of God concerning them. And, and it takes my mind back to the question again that I asked everybody on Easter. What perspective do we bring to our prayers? What perspective do we have in prayer? What do we seek in prayer? What is our perspective in prayer? What was the writer's perspective in prayer as he prayed for these Hebrews? What is our perspective in prayer? And I think that this invocation helps us to maybe tighten that up and, and maybe even answer that question, hopefully at least provide what the scriptures would say should be the answer to that question. What should be our perspective in prayer? What should we seek in prayer for ourselves, for other people? First of all, I think this invocation shows us what it means for God to provide us with every good thing. His plea is that God would provide these readers with every good thing. And this invocation shows us what that looks like. Fit them out in all goodness to do your will. Goodness as defined in the way that we did. What does it mean for God to provide every good thing as we seek that for the other? I mean, don't we seek God's good for, for one another? What does that really mean? What does that look like? I think that this invocation helps us to also see what it means when the writer says that, and, and our understanding of God being at work in us according to what is well-pleasing to him. We all would affirm, yes, God is at work in his people and he's at work in a way that's pleasing to him. Well, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? What is pleasing to him? How is he at work in his people? What is he doing? And lastly, it shows us what it means to do the will of God. Now, I would never put that on anyone in this congregation, but I've known Christians who have even gone so far as to go through the whole New Testament and, from a grammatical standpoint, find every imperative in the New Testament and say, that's the will of God. If it's, if it's constructed in Greek as an imperative, or even perhaps things in the Old Testament that don't seem to be done away in the New Testament, I catalog a whole list of imperatives and I say that's what it is to do the will of God. What does the writer say it is to do the will of God? What does it mean to be fit, in all, fit out in all goodness in order to be fit for doing the will of God? This sort of God, the God of peace, the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who's the great shepherd of the sheep. The God who in this work of fitting us out is working all of this according to his good pleasure. What is it to do the will of God? An important question, right? And I want you to think about that. But this climactic summary doxology that is the, is the high point of even this invocation that is a high point, it shows us that we have to view all things 
in our lives, in our prayers, in our burdens, in our longings, in our interactions. We have to view all things in terms of God's purpose and his triumph in Jesus. That doesn't give an answer to every single question that may come to mind, but it gives us a set of lenses, a perspective for understanding what it really is to implore God in this sort of a way, what it really is to live the Christian life. How God would have us to pray, how we're to understand prayer, how we minister to one another, how we seek his provision, what we think about that provision. And I pray that you'll spend some time thinking about this, praying about this, meditating on this. Because this is really where the rubber meets the road. Not only in just living out our days, but even in ultimately, remember again, the writer's goal is that these Christians would persevere. And it's, all, it's easy to do all of this when the waters are calm and the ship is sailing along, Right? But when the storms come and the problems come and the difficulty comes and the grief comes and the loss comes, then it becomes harder to think about what is it to do the will of God, right? This writer is putting these things in front of his readers. He gives this this invocation to encourage them, to strengthen them, to give them hope, to give them courage. And it ought to be the same with us. When the storms come, and they do come, then how do we think about this God? How do we do this thing called the Christian life? Father, I know there's a lot of moving parts in this. I I pray that it is truly a, a very compact package that you open it up. And it becomes expansive and, and very much adorned. But I pray that these images and these ideas and the way that the writer wove them together, that you will meld them and order and organize them in our own hearts and minds. That they would bear the fruitfulness in our understanding, in our conviction, in our faithfulness that the writer sought for these Hebrews. Our lives may be very easy right now, relatively speaking. They may be trouble-free, relatively speaking. We may not even be able to relate to the pressures that were being brought to bear against these Hebrew believers. But our day will come. Our day will come. And I pray that these truths will hold us steadfast that we will be able in all things to adorn the gospel and to bring the mind of Christ to bear in the challenges of life. Help us, Father. Help us to help one another. Help us to think about how we bear one another's burdens, how we pray for one another, what we seek for one another, what we seek for ourselves. What is the nature and and orientation of our invocation. How do we seek your face? Minister to each one. Father, we're all different sorts of people with all different backgrounds and all different 
experiences and understandings and history with the scriptures and history in the church. And, and we're all different people, but meet each one according to his need, according to your purpose to see each one fully grow up into all things, in all things into Christ who is the head, to be established, steadfast, firm, to live out in our lives this truth that our God is the God who has brought peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.